I'm Amy Halpern-Lash. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. We continue our conversation with Dr. Carlos Alberto Torres. Dr. Torres is a distinguished professor at the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, founding director of the UCLA Paulo Freire Institute, and UNESCO Chair in Global Learning and Global Citizenship Education. This is part two of a two-part interview. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to now. Welcome back, Dr. Torres. This is, of course, the 100th anniversary of Freire's birth. And he's obviously, he's talking about pedagogy of the oppressed is a pedagogy of liberation. And what you were just describing in terms of what people achieved in Arizona, which certainly is far from a state of liberation, is very exciting. How do you see the struggle? I mean, one of the things that we talk to a lot of the people that we interview about is what can that struggle look like at this point, particularly in the United States, in schools? I know you've talked, for example, about the importance of public schools being sites of social justice education or popular education. And at the same time, of course, we have the contradiction that these are instruments of the state, which is clearly not interested in, as, as an institution in liberation. How do we resolve that? And how can people apply Freire's thinking to those issues here now? That's a very good question, John. And, uh, and in fact, all the questions that you are posing are difficult questions. You know, I was an advisor of Paulo Freire when he was Secretary of Education in the city of Sao Paulo. So I traveled to Sao Paulo and I spent some time occasionally with him and his chief of cabinet, Moacir Gadotti, who is the main Freire biographer in Brazil. My sense is that what Freire did in that experience needs to be studied very carefully. And we wrote a book with Pilar Cadiz and Pia Wong on the experience of Freire in Sao Paulo. And the answer, I think, is very simple. On the one hand, you need to have social movements pressuring the state. Of course, Freire was the ideal secretary of education because of his philosophy. But he was not really somebody with a team that could in three years fully modify a bureaucratic system of very low quality. So what he did, he appealed to the social movements and created ways in which the social movements will interact with the school system. And that is the first answer. The social movement should have one feet inside the state and one feet outside the state. And in that way, push and pull constantly in changing models of social transformation. The second argument that was used at the time is the Freudian model of identifying what are the key concepts or the generative themes inside the communities? Because Freire, if you really look at pedagogy of the oppressed, is a model of participatory action research, particularly the third chapter. And if you really look at that model of participatory action research, the whole argument is less engaged in dialogue with the different members of communities, any community, and see 
to what extent that community think that their curriculum address their needs, hmm? the generative things. Well, in, in, at the moment that Freire was doing this work in, in Sao Paulo, he offered schools to choose to create alternative curriculum through generative models. And about 20% of them chose to do that. So at that moment, the teachers and the uh, curricular administrators and the people that were working with teacher training double up the amount of work. And we brought many uh, professors from the universities engaging in conversation with this social transformation on Saturdays. And I emphasize this, the connection between university and school system is a must in order to really make an impact. And why? Not only because when people in the university study, they are supposed to have access to the most elaborated theories, etc. But because the people in the schools need to be heard. And in these Saturday meetings, everybody was kind of dumping their frustrations, dumping this moment that they didn't feel represented, respected, they didn't feel help. They requested specific things to continue their own work. And that connection, university, and, and in this case, elementary and middle school were fundamental. Finally, the other aspect of this conversation is how the communities identify the work that happens in the schools. In a bureaucratic model, in a model that has been dominated by neoliberalism, and cuidado, because neoliberalism has been in place since the 1980s. One of the advantages of me coming to the US in 1980 to do my PhD at Stanford University without learning a simple, a, 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 one word of English, I have to learn English when I was doing my first three, trimester or my first semester at Stanford, was to observe the change between the previous democratic and quite decent model of governance to the, more, the, the, the movement that created simultaneously first neoconservatorism and then neoliberalism. And neoliberalism took off, took off globally, Thatcher, Mulroney, Reagan, etc. So from that moment on, the schools were heavily impacted by neoliberalism. And what is the principle of neoliberalism? Possessive individualism. This is not original. This is the principle of most of the central values of capitalism taught court. But the possessive model that neoliberalism has articulated then becomes at the school level into competition, no collaboration, into the idea that you study to pass exams, etc. And the US continues to look with extraordinary interest the experiences of South Korea, the experiences of Shanghai, recently incorporated in the last three or four years into PISA. But look, these kids in the Korean and Chinese schools have no way to enjoy life because not only they study like crazy in the schools, then they go to the shadow education and do the same. I had a student of mine doing an analysis of Taiwan with, with this argument, I will conclude the argument. And he 
told me, I want to study the use of time in the school. I said, but that is not very appealing to me because, you know, you have 45 minutes for one particular topic, 45 minutes for the next. I said, no, let's see. So he did the study. You know what we discovered? We discovered that the teacher knew that the kids were three or four or five chapters in the textbooks advanced because they had been studying that in the evening school paid by the parents. So the teacher did not make any effort and improve upon what the, 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 the students already knew. And what happened with the students in the same classroom? They were studying for the next class. So it was all a farce. It was all an extraordinary show that everybody put. Everybody pretend that it's studying. Everybody pretend that it's teaching. And there is no virtual actual learning. The learning is a process. The whole life world of these kids has been destroyed. And you know what? Finally, the Koreans have to, South Koreans have to recognize. And I spoke about 2019 with the Minister of Education in Korea. And I asked him, why you have this new semester without testing? Because testing is the tool, huh? if you put it, the weapon of choice of neoliberalism. And the argument that he gave me was a fantastic argument. But in fact, it was very clear to me that they have recognized that they couldn't have so many suicides at the age of 13, 14, 15, 16 in the classroom, period. So they need to give them the possibility to have breathing space. And that breathing space created an entire new formula inside the classroom. And the teachers enjoy, the students enjoy. And that happened one year before the year in which they had to define themselves in which quality university they will go. Was one, you know, tentative approach, but I like it very much. Mm -hmm. Carlos, I'd like to return to this concept of community. So especially in the US, and I'm going to use an example, Stanford or Palo Alto, where you and I both attended school in the 80s. School districts or educational communities, for the most part, are defined by financial socioeconomic communities. So we have these communities with certain interests. Obviously, the people, the, the kids who attend Pali, the Palo Alto High School, those communities have very different concerns than the, the people attending high school in East Palo Alto, correct? And that doesn't seem to me to be a very healthy way for students to have diversity, which you explained is essential for democracy and for absorbing democratic principles in education? Community is a complicated concept. First, because it's an utopia. In a way, we live through desires, and those desires are projected into utopias, and those utopias create new options. Now, there is a new utopia by Mark Loret, putting $4 billion to create a whole new a city, sustainable food, sustainable city in one of the deserts in the US, which will start with 25,000 people and will reach 5 million people. And assuming that that will be a sustainable community. So communities as such are complicated. Another example, 
I am a Latino. My family, some part of that came from Latin America, some part of that came from Europe, but I'm a Latino. I speak Spanish, that's my, my, my natural language and so on. But do you think that all the Latinos in the US are part of the same community? Of course not, because you have fragmentations like the growing Latino evangelic churches, which are highly traditional, and I would say even conservative. Then you have some groups that come from specific parts, Cubans, that tend to be highly critical of socialism for the good reason that they escape socialism. Then you have the indigenous groups of Latin America, the people that come from Mexico from in one of the 25, 26 different ethnic groups, and they speak not even Spanish, Zapoteco, etc. These people work in construction. Are they the same community that the typical Latino? So you can keep going and going. The world community is fascinating because not what could be accomplished, but the difficulties to accomplish community. In a way, we have ideal communities. And I like that. We need to have ideal communities. But in order for communities to play a major role inside the schools, now we have to have communities where are well-educated and work with a model of dialogue. Freire used dialogue as the center element in the constitution of democracy. The whole argument of Freire was fascinating because one day he said to me, you know, Carlos, when I started working, I defended democracy. He was talking about liberal democracy. At the beginning of his career, he was really a liberal democratic scholar. But I never ever gave up on the question of class because class is one of the main issues to differentiate fragmented communities. Then when I was in Chile, in the middle of a model of socialism that will obtain power by elections, it was the first experience in Latin America at that level, people said, okay, Pablo, you are talking about class is very good because we all are against class, we want to socialize, etc. But democracy, democracy is not working. 20 years later, he passed through Chile, and the same people that interviewed him were saying, Pablo, okay, you talk about democracy all the time, that's good, but class, that is obsolete. So in a way, people see them, the question of democracy and class as different ways to engage in the community. And my argument is that Freire was always thinking of dialogue as a way to communicate the different views that are always perpetually separating individuals. The final element is school meetings were boring. Oh, they're not boring anymore in the US. They are battlegrounds. <laughs> you have all these MAGA groups coming, fighting everything. But in a way, MAGA groups are making a great contribution here because it's so irrational that when this process subsides, we'll have great examples. Plus, the majority of them are getting sick and dying. So I'm not wishing that to happen to them. But if you don't vaccinate and if you don't have ways to protect yourself with a mask, then you can get sick and die. My point being, the arguments in the school system now 
are exactly at the level of discussions on democracy. The question of demos kratos, the way in which the people, the demos, debate the arguments, the kratos. And that is making now the US a fascinating and dangerous country because what is at stake here is not a party winning. What is at stake here is democracy surviving. Speaking of, of dialogue and of democracy, comparisons and contrasts are often made between Freire and John Dewey. What are the commonalities and the differences uh, between Freire's work and Dewey's work? Yeah, I have written a, an article on Freire and Dewey. First of all, there are four Deweys, right? Uh, somebody who lived a very long life, you can parcel out some of his analysis throughout life, at least in four different ways to see and represent his own views of the world. And Freire, I will argue there are three Freire's in a way, because the first Freire was a democratic liberal scholar, but heavy connected with post-colonialism. In the whole argument of Freire, at the very beginning of the conversation for him, liberal democracy was a way to confront colonialism not a way to incorporate colonialism. Then there was another Freire, the one that began to read and be more uh, skillful managing the technical component of Marxism, which was his exile, particularly in Chile, and the impact of recovering his own language working in Africa, and Amilcar Cabral, a very brilliant uh, Marxist from Guinea-Bissau, who really, he was dead by the time Freire arrived in Abyssal, but who really gave a whole set of premises that Freire appreciated. One interesting premise of Amilcar Cabral and the PAI, the liberation movement, was the only legacy of the colonial power was a language, which is Portuguese. So Freire was not very satisfied with the argument. And his question was why we cannot have uh, a Creole alphabet in which we can incorporate things and so on. And the leader, leadership said, no, Portuguese. And in a way, Portuguese situates the Portuguese speaking African uh, former colonies into two sets of uh, global powers. Brazil, the fifth largest country in, in the world, and certainly the largest Portuguese-speaking society, and Portugal. I see Portugal today is almost 100% vaccinated, right? So it put some parts of Africa in dialogue with two very important countries. So freely use language as a way to under, understand first identity and second citizenship. If you really look at what Freire was doing in literacy training in the first more liberal period, it was to create citizenship because in Brazil, people who could not read and write could not vote. Literacy was an exclusionary device. And when he was so successful with the Angico project, and people don't know this, but the money for the Angico project in 1963 came from the Alliance for the Progress. And Kennedy was very happy 
to go into the celebration of the end of this experience, three months of teaching and learning in which about 600 peasants in an area of very oppressive ways and impressively oppressive environment, including the weather. I was there with Pablo Freire 30 years later. They were learning to read and write, but also learning conscientization, conscientization. And this model was pretty much working. If Kennedy would not have been assassinated in Dallas, he would have gone to celebrate with the government of Brazil and with Freire, this new model of literacy training. So that's one element that requires attention. But what happened with the last Freire? The last Freire was essentially a social democratic, fairly radical scholar. And the Workers' Party was an alliance of 14 to 16 different groups. It was a, a large tent that had from very radical socialists and communists to even more radical anarchists and anything in between. So that model was important because Freire was one of the founders of this party that achieved success first in the municipality of Sao Paulo when they, they got the election and Freire become the secretary of education and then with Lula uh, winning the election. So the three Freires and the four Dewey's. Let me then give a very generic answer to the question. Number one, both of them have a connection between democracy and education. There's no question about it. Were the same model of, of democracy, were the same model of education, I'm not so sure, I doubt it. Fred, in a way, picked up on the, the liberal democratic model of citizenship that was started in the 19th century by Sarmiento, uh, an Argentinian self-made scholar and become president of Argentina at some point, who searched all over the world for a model that he called popular education, and then discovered that the concept popular education was very radical. It was a concept that came from Spain, from Italy, and the concept was the creation of an alternative hegemony through education, and that was the idea of the workers' parties. So then he changed that to public education. What Freire did was creating the concept of public popular education. And that concept itself allowed for the idea of community, allowed for the idea of dialogue to be incorporated. My other point is that Dewey wanted to focus on children's education, uh, but he wanted the teacher to be well represented in the classroom. That is, to be somebody who have an ability to fully engage with the students through different techniques. For Freire, he never talked about a teacher that engaged through different techniques. Freire, what Freire did, engage through dialogue, and dialogue become a model of research, a method of teaching, and a method of political deliberation. And those elements put into the extreme create the argument that I mentioned before on participatory budgeting, which was created originally in Brazil by social movements at the turn of the 1990s. So my sense 
is that Freire was very explicit about the politicization of education because he could not assume that education was apolitical. Dewey was a little bit more cautious, but he was also very strong in arguing that the progressive of his era have to help the welfare state by working around the model of education that need to promote this idea of the welfare state. And finally, one could talk about the state in general, but look, the model that is being now uh, projected in Build Better Back is a new, more, I would say, systematic welfare state than the one that existed in the US until now. And if this model succeeds, then the people that are the subordinate social sectors, the people that are the children and, and youth and adults that are poor, even in the state of California, the richest state, we have 30% of the children who are below the poverty level, will have a very different take in the future. So the welfare state, when it's a good model that works, is not the typical, as put by some lecture uh, readings on, on Marx, the typical committee of direction of the bourgeoisie. There are elements of the bourgeoisie obviously interacting because in a way, the political parties in the US are not going to undermine capitalism that has been particularly for the powerful, the rich and famous, so successful in the US. We have seen that with the new deliberation on the question of the external debt. But leaving aside that fact that is impossible to contest, when you have a system closer to Northern European societies, you have much more humane model. When you have a model of neo-populism and neo-Nazism, you have a very crazy, evil model. So if you have to choose for me, the, the situation is very simple. So, Carlos, you said that people are not born small-D Democrats. Could you expand on that? Yes. In a way, you know, children are wonderful, right? I love children. In a way, when I saw my children growing up, <laughs> one of my children, one day I live in Patagonia, so one day I said, oh, I'm going to get a... a a rabbit, because rabbit and children seem to be very close, right? So I got a nice white rabbit with uh, yellow eyes, beautiful. Uh, no, kind of a yellow or red eyes. And I took it to home. And I put the rabbit, the poor rabbit was absolutely flabbergasted. He didn't understand what's happening. Put the rabbit on the ground and I showed my two-year-old son, here is a rabbit for you. I think the one that was flabbergasted was my son too, because he took two steps, hit the rabbit, the rabbit hit the door and disappeared. We never saw the rabbit again. Was an act in which a kid will react because was not well educated, it's my fault, that the rabbit was a friend and not an enemy. So we have this idea in the Freirean tradition. People don't, they don't really are naturally prepare to act democratically. 
in part because ideology, I spoke about neoliberalism, and in part because they are not really individuals that come to school like being a tabula rasa, no. But on the other hand, they have also the right to discuss, understand, elaborate, contradict. And those are the principles of dialogue in a classroom. In that context, then, the idea of creating a dialogue about democracy is the democratic way to be democratic. And respecting the student is the democratic way to respect the other. The great problem we have in the US is that the minorities don't respect the majorities, period. And democracy is a rule of the majorities. Now, the question is, if the majority is oppressed, then that rule need to be challenged. But if the majority really work around some notion of common good, then you can debate what are the principles of that common good, that's fine. But as long as the debate is about the common good, I will be satisfied. The problem that we are having in the US is that the debate is not about the principles of the common good. The way is about the principles that I like and my little MAGA group supports. Well, fortunately, I live in California and I don't have to see that very often, right? Because <laughs> California really is out of this world. But still, you, you have very radical MAGA people in California. There are not that many. They are not, I don't presume that they are hidden. I don't think there are that many. In fact, even the, the way in which the, the registration in the parties is very clear how it is. But I think California has one element that I appreciate so much. It goes around sustainability as a premium for life. And if you really do that, then climate change is important. I live in an area that we are constantly under the risk of a fire, constantly. I left my home three days ago to come to Germany. And the next day, two things which never happened, well, one of them never happened, is happening. And the person that is looking after my dogs and the house called me and said, Dr. Torres, you won't believe what happened. First, we had a fire only six miles from here that was a stop. And then we have torrential rain. And I said, torrential rain in California? Are you sure you are in California? And he said, yes, torrential rain, which was very good because we have a fire. So imagine, we live in an area in which things are so precarious, right? But we are really looking to ways in which we can make these uh, conditions more favorable for human habitat and for the habitat of the planet. So in a way, global citizenship education and sustainability are sister twins. And these sister twins articulate the principles of a new model of dialogical democracy and should be the central areas of the dialogue inside the school system. One of my plans for next year is to get engaged in conversation with the scientists at UCLA. Why I say this? 
Look, I have the best intentions, but I'm not an ecologist. I am not a geographer, et cetera, et cetera. So in order to think of a curriculum instruction that will make a difference in the life of people, I have to talk to the specialists and make them aware of the, our need in the schools of education to have them coming to terms with us. If we are successful, we will be able to create a new model of civics or civism in which it's not only about democracy, but it's about protection of the environment. It's not only about democracy, but it's about citizenship. It's not only about national citizenship, but also global citizenship. Global citizenship have to give choices, have to give options to national citizenship. So that's more or less where we are in some of these uh, analyses with the people in the Paulo Freire Institute at UCLA. That very much ties in with our concept of expanding the universe of obligation. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not easy. Of course it's not easy. Let me put an example. For a, a, some time in my life, I have chicken, right? Not everybody can have chicken, but I got a rural area where I live. You know what? I didn't put any garbage in, in the garbage because the chicken eats everything. So if people have have chicken, they can take advantage of what the chicken produces, the eggs, etc. If you eat chicken, then you have eat your own chicken, then you know exactly where they come from. But they were an extraordinary level of sustainability for my own life. So in a way, they are techniques, constant techniques that you have to incorporate in your daily life to make your life more sustainable. Of course, you live in an apartment, you cannot have chicken, right? But you can have all the things like five different levels of way to dis dispose of your residue. So, but it requires discipline. It requires knowledge. It requires a sense of obligation. It requires a perception of this earth that is being so deeply affected by all of us, it requires a celebration of diversity. It requires ways to cross the line of difference. All of those things in your own apartment in the middle of a city. All of those things cannot be eliminated because it's not a rural area. It has to be, and it has to be incorporated daily. And it has to be part of the conversation at dinner. I have a question that I think relates to sustainability and also to global citizenship. We recently posted an interview with Walter Mignolo that he had given our sister podcast, a correction podcast called, in which he argues for the importance of decoloniality, shifting from a Western mindset to teach differently about the development of the modern world and what it means to be modern. What's, what's your perspective? I don't disagree with the question of uh, post-coloniality. After all, decoloniality, which is not the same as post-coloniality, was one of the elements that impacted Freire and Orlando Falsborda in Latin America when they created participatory action research, chapter three of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. My point being, however, that you grew up in a specific environments. And I have to argue that 
in terms of the classic of philosophy and social sciences, most of them, at least in my own education, have been connected with the Western philosophy. One could learn more on moving away from that, but I will argue that perfectly unpacked and deconstructed, some of the classic of philosophy could be very helpful today in the argument that we are making today. There are multiple civilizations. Coming from Latin America, the Summa Kansai. The Summa Kansai is a model of the good life. So the good life that is being developed in some parts of Latin America, which is part of the idea of decolonialization or decolonial, is a different way to engage in dialogue among ourselves as a community and ourselves with the environment and with the planet. You have many other options for this new idea of the good life. Ubuntu in South Africa. Ubuntu is I am because you are. And the question of I am because you are is also because we are all part of this environment. So the traditional indigenous philosophies are extremely valuable for us to understand fully and engage fully in this idea of the current modernity. But we have to be careful as well because the modernity is not our desire of being modern, but it's the way in which modernity has been implemented daily by these elements that capitalism has demonstrated to be so powerful, which is consumption. And in a way, the way in which consume, we consume is not very summa kansai. And in synthesis, I will endorse the decolonial model. I will use the idea of post-coloniality to argue that many of the national bourgeoisies in the colonial countries were the ones that benefited the most by the former colonial countries to live. I will argue that the social movements and indigenous groups that are fighting against all these traditions of post-coloniality have a great deal of reason to defend themselves. And I will argue that we need to create a law in which the environment, the rivers have rights. So I will say the rights of nature. All of those elements are more complicated than one could argue, but at the moment you have Ecuador and you have Bolivia, multi-plural nations, another thing that we have to recognize, the multi-plurality of nations in the US is a good example. We never recognize that, how many nations we have, we have inside this nation. And also the idea that the good life is not about consumption, it's also about production. And it's about production in solidarity, it's about production that will give everybody the possibility to live an honest, dignifying life. And all of those elements are multiple causes of conversation and so on. And in Europe now, it's very important the conversation on uh, the idea of giving every person that lives in a particular nation a basic sum of money for survival. Is that good? Well, it has to be discussed. The welfare state can do much better by simply expanding the networks of solidarity. But at least if you give, uh, the argument is about $1,000 per month 
to every family or every working person, then you have a basic premise of sustainability. We cannot have, like we have in California, over a quarter million of homeless. But in order to answer the question of homeless, you need to have more places which are built. And we have this model in California, not in my neighborhood. So all of these passes, in my opinion, to public policy. Unless you have a very democratic public policy, all of these other arguments about decoloniality are very good in principle, but requires serious public policy to be implemented. Which of your many articles and books would you suggest is most important for teachers to read right now? Hmm. I honestly, I will never be able to give you an answer to that because uh, there are different things, right? It depends on my humor. One day I was on a plane and said, how about if I put together all my hours of conversation with people in Latin America and I write an article on the plane about dialogue with teachers about power and personal biography. And I create fictional characters who I document with hard data. And that in a way could be an eye-opener for many teachers. It was published in a, in a, not in a journal. So I'm not so sure if I can, if may I take an opportunity to think about it and I send you a note later on because it has to be for teachers. And, um, and I, I don't know if I'm good of writing for teachers. I think in a way I write what I think I should say, but maybe the way I say it may not be as equivalent of a good pedagogical approach. I'm not so sure. Yes, please do send us something and also other suggestions, you know, perhaps by other people that you think would be useful for our audience to read. And we'll be very happy to post that. And we want to thank you, Dr. Carlos Alberto Torres of UCLA. Thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you. Be happy. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs focusing on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week. Thank you.